Most people listening to this podcast have probably heard of serial killers such as Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Rose and Fred West, Ian Brady, Myra Hindley, the list goes on. The lives and crimes of these notorious killers have been documented thoroughly by police, the media, and producers who have gone on to make documentaries and films about their horrific crimes. We know who most, if not all, of their victims are, but not all serial killers receive such infamy and glorification. We don't know a lot about their backgrounds or their movements over the years, and I've got a feeling we've barely scratched the surface when it comes to identifying all the victims of the man we will be discussing today. He is known to have killed at least two of his romantic partners and is suspected of killing a third. He is known to have killed two children, one of whom was his own daughter, and abused and abandoned another young child, yet remarkably has only ever been convicted of one of these crimes. In this episode, we will explore the cases he is known to be connected to and a few more that he is rumoured to also have committed. Let's uncover the disappearances of Laureen Vaughan, Denise Denault, Denise Bowden, and the murders of Unsun June, Marlise Honeychurch, Marie Vaughan, Sarah McWaters, and the middle child Jane Doe. Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of the Uncovered True Crime podcast. My name is Stephanie and each week we uncover a different unsolved true crime case, ranging from unsolved murders, missing persons, Jane and John Doe's, and suspicious deaths. You can listen to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and other podcast streaming apps as well as on YouTube. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at uncover underscore pod and on Instagram at uncover true crime pod. If you follow the podcast on Twitter you might be aware that I was struggling to come up with a title to this particular episode. The reason for this is because we're going to be discussing numerous victims today it would have been very hard to fit all of their names into the title of the episode but I also didn't want to name the episode after the man we'll be discussing as a possible or confirmed suspect in these cases as I want all episodes of this podcast to be centred around the victims. I've been following these cases we're going to talk about today for a while, especially the case formerly known as the Allenstown 4, so I'm very eager to cover them today. Without further ado, let's uncover the disappearances of Lorraine Ron, Denise Denault, Denise Bowden, and the murder of Unsun June, Marlise Honeychurch, Marie Vaughan, Sarah McWaters, and the middle child Jane Doe. I'd like to begin with talking about the murder of Unsun June, and I would like to thank the Bearbrook podcast for most of the following information related to her. Sadly, Unsun's case is usually only referred to briefly when the media cover other parts of the story, and although her case is solved, Unsun did tragically lose her life, and she deserves more than just a footnote at the bottom of an online article. Sadly, the only other information I was able to find about Unsun that wasn't covered by the Bearbrook podcast came from her obituary. Unsun was born on the 5th of July 1957 in Korea. She immigrated to California with her family as a young child and would later go on to attend Pacific Grove High School and Montgomery Peninsula College. She received her master's degree from the University of California and started her career as a chemist soon after. She worked at a number of different pharmaceutical companies, as well as the city of Hope Hospital in LA, where she researched bone marrow transplants. Unsun was very intelligent, but also described as being slightly boho, free-spirited, and had a love of the arts, and would attend pottery classes with her friend Renee Rose. She loved learning about different cultures and developed a particular interest in Buddhism. She had a love for people, and did her best to help those less fortunate than herself. Despite having a lot going for her, Unsun was said to find dating difficult and awkward, and her cousin Elaine said that she was lonely, having never found the love of her life. When Unsun turned 40, she felt a lot of pressure to find a husband and to settle down, and in 1999, she thought she'd found her perfect mate in a man called Larry Vanner. They met after an acquaintance of Unsun's recommended Larry to her as a handyman, and a romance between the pair soon blossomed. She invited Larry to a family barbecue and was so excited to introduce him to her nearest and dearest. 
Unfortunately, her cousin Elaine didn't see the qualities that Intun saw. She said that she instantly got a bad vibe from Vanner and immediately noted his rugged and almost dirty appearance and also the fact that he seemed to be significantly older than Intun. Elaine talks to Larry, hoping to find out more about him. He claims to have been a corporal in the army and since being discharged, he had worked for the CIA and could, quote, disappear at a moment's notice, unquote. Elaine replied that she knew someone who had been a corporal in the army and that she could perhaps introduce the pair. Larry didn't take the suggestion well and told her to never question his past. A few days later, Unsun called her cousin and asked her what she thought of Larry. Elaine expressed her concerns and urged Unsun to be careful and to make sure that he was telling her the truth about his past. Unsun became very upset with Elaine and sadly, this would be the last time the two spoke. In the coming weeks, months and years, Unsun would gradually distance herself from her family. She wrote emails and letters to her brother, stating that she wanted nothing to do with them and that they couldn't bear seeing her happy. Her family said that this didn't sound like her and it's an unfortunate reality that this behaviour is not uncommon in someone being abused by their partner. Unsun and Larry would later go on to have a Star Trek themed wedding in either late 2001 or early 2002. A marriage certificate was never issued so it was not legally binding but even so, none of her family were in attendance. One person that remained close to Unsun was her friend Renee Rose. They would often attend art shows together and in May 2002, Renee called her friend to go over plans they had made for the following week. Renee told the Bearbrook podcast that Unsun sounded anxious and hastily ended the call but promised to call her back the next day. Renee waited for the call but it never came. She turned up to their arranged meeting place the following week but Unsun never showed. Concerned, she called Larry to make sure that Unsun was okay. He said that Unsun's mother was dying and she had travelled to Virginia to be with her and that she couldn't be contacted. Renee continued to call Larry and his story started to change over time. One minute she was in Virginia, next Oregon. She'd apparently come home for a short period of time but then had to leave soon after. Another time, he said that she was so emotionally fragile that she was unable to talk to anybody. Unsatisfied with Larry's explanations and with no sight of Unsun, Renee reported her missing a few weeks after her her last call with her. Police immediately brought Larry in for questioning and he claimed that Unsun had experienced a mental breakdown and was seeing a therapist in Oregon. He asked the police to leave her alone as an interaction with the police might make the situation worse. They asked Larry to call the therapist and sure enough, he did call an Oregon-based therapist, although he hung up before talking to anyone. Police followed up on this and called the therapist back but due to privacy laws, he could neither confirm nor deny whether Unsun was a patient of his, but he did confirm that no one matching her description was being treated at his facility. Police were suspicious of Larry and noted that he became very angry when they tried to talk about his past. They soon realised he had no valid ID, so investigators asked if they could run his prints through the database and he agreed. They soon uncovered a list of aliases Larry used over the years, including Robert Bob Evans, Gerald Jerry E. Mockerman, Curtis Mayo Kimball and Gordon Jensen. Those last two names were of particular significance to investigators as 12 years earlier, he had been released on parole after serving just over one year for child abandonment. He absconded from parole the following day and police had no idea of his whereabouts within those 12 years. It is likely that when Larry agreed for police to take his fingerprints, he underestimated how quickly a computer could dig up his past. He probably thought he'd have time to go home, pack a few items and start over. As he had violated his parole, police were able to search the home he shared with Unsun in Richmond, California. It didn't take them long to discover her dismembered mummified body in a three-foot pile of cat litter in a crawl space under the garage. He was soon charged with her murder and a trial was scheduled. Lead investigator on the case, Roxanne Grunheide, decided to look more into the child abandonment case and found that in 1986, Gordon Jensen, aka Larry Vanner, had moved into an RV park in Cypress, California with a five-year-old girl called Lisa. He soon became acquainted with a couple called Richard and Catherine Decker and he told them that his wife, Lisa's mother, had passed away from cancer and he was struggling to look after her as a single father. He sobbed and they sympathised with his situation. The Deckers told him about their daughter's infertility struggle and it was agreed that Lisa would live with the Deckers' daughter for a 
trial period and if she fitted in, they would legally adopt her. When Lisa moved in with Richard and Catherine's daughter, Lisa began exhibiting extremely troubling behaviour. She reportedly touched the deck her son-in-law, quote, inappropriately, unquote, and would eventually disclose that she had been sexually abused by Gordon Jensen. Richard and Catherine returned to the RV park to confront Gordon, but he was gone. Police were notified and Lisa was taken into foster care and eventually adopted by another family. Police thanked the Deckers as they had unknowingly saved Lisa from, quote, severe torture and abuse, unquote. It wasn't until March 1989 that police would eventually catch up with Gordon Jensen, although by this point he was going by the name Curtis Mayo Kimball. Lisa was far too traumatised to testify against him, so the sexual abuse part of the charges was dropped and he was sentenced to three years for child abandonment, although would only serve half of that. As he was in violation of his parole, police were easily able to obtain a warrant to search his and Unsu's home. Sadly, it wouldn't take them long to find Unsu's body concealed in a pile of cat litter in a crawl space in their garage. Immediately after this discovery, Larry Vanner, aka Curtis Mayo Kimball, was charged with Unsun's murder. He apparently became quite anxious when overhearing a conversation between investigators and the prosecutor where he discovered they were digging deeper and deeper into his past. The next day, against his lawyer's advice, he pled guilty to Unsun's murder, presumably to halt this investigation. He was ultimately sentenced to 15 years to life, although this would not deter Roxanne Gernheid from continuing the investigation. She discovered there were DNA samples from both Lisa and Curtis in evidence that had been collected with the purpose of submitting them for a paternity test, although this had never been conducted. Roxanne ordered the paternity test and discovered that there was absolutely no genetic relation between them. Curtis Kimball was not Lisa's father. This brought the entire story as to how she came to be in his custody into question and thousands of hours were spent trying to determine Lisa's identity. Thankfully, they were successful. Lisa, who is now living a happy life with her husband and three children, was born Don Bowden. Her mother, Donise Bowden, had not been seen since 1981 and the last person to be seen with her was her boyfriend. Bob Evans, also known as Curtis Mayo Kimball, Gordon Jensen and Larry Vanner. Denise Bowden was 23 years old when she disappeared with her six-month-old daughter Dawn, now known as Lisa. Denise, Dawn and Bob Evans were last seen at Denise's parents' house in Gothstown, New Hampshire on Thanksgiving 1981. Her parents went to visit them a few days later to find their house abandoned. The couple had apparently fallen on hard financial times and her family assumed that they had moved away to avoid their debt and to start again somewhere else. This, along with, quote, their family dynamic, unquote, led to neither Denise or Dawn being reported missing until 2016, when Lisa's true parentage came to light. Like Unsun, I could find very little on what Denise was like as a person. In the last news conference New Hampshire police held about this case, they released a photo of Denise Bowden taken while she was pregnant, and this is only one of two photos of Denise that are publicly available. I couldn't find out when Denise and Bob became a couple, but he is in this photo with her. Police strongly believe that Bob Evans killed Denise Bowden, but her body could be almost anywhere. It's possible that he killed her in New Hampshire and left her body there, or they could have genuinely left the state together and he might have killed her later on. Between Denise last being seen on Thanksgiving 1981 and Bob and Don resurfacing as Gordon Jensen and Lisa in 1985, their whereabouts are not known and it's possible that Denise was alive for at least some of this time so she really could be anywhere. This is pure speculation on my part, but I am curious to know whether anyone knew that Bob Evans wasn't Don's father. If Bob was unaware of this and then later found out, this could go to motive as to why he killed Denise. Twelve Jane Doe's have been ruled out as being Denise Bowden, and she was also ruled out as being one of the Allenstown Four, a name given to four Jane Doe's found in Bearbrook State Park, just 15 miles away from Denise's house. These gruesome murders further demonstrate this man's violent and psychopathic behaviour, as this time, not only did he kill an entire family, but he killed a member of his own family. 
1985, a barrel containing two female bodies, an adult and a child, were found in a rural part of Bearbrook State Park. Another barrel was found in 2000, which contained the remains of two female children. Police determined through DNA testing and through several other tests that all four victims were killed at the same time, likely between 1978 and 1985, and all but one of the victims were maternally related to each other. The adult female, likely aged between 23 to 33, was the mother of the oldest child, who was between 5 and 11, and the youngest child, between 1 and 3. The middle child, estimated to be around 2 to 4 years old, was not related to the other three, but had likely spent a long time in their care. It would later be revealed that the man known as Larry Vanner, Gordon Jensen, Curtis Mayo Kimball and Bob Evans was the father of the middle child and was also the person who committed these awful murders. All four victims were wrapped in electrical tape and had likely died of blunt force trauma. In 2019, thanks to the hard work of a civilian with an incredible knack for research, the adult female and her two children were identified as Marlise Honeychurch, age 24, Marie Vaughan, age 7, and Sarah McWaters, who was 11 months old, the last time they were seen. Marlise was last seen with her boyfriend Terry Rasmussen on Thanksgiving 1978 in La Pute, California after a family argument. Terry Rasmussen, Larry Vanner, Gordon Jensen, Curtis Mayo Kimball and Bob Evans are all one and the same person, although as his legal name is Terry Rasmussen, that is how I'll be referring to him going forward. Terry's daughter, the unidentified middle child found in Allenstown, was not with him on Thanksgiving 1978, so he must have gained access to her sometime later. Police are still unsure as to when Terry killed the four females, however in my opinion it is more likely than not that they were killed in New Hampshire where they were found. No witnesses have yet been able to place Marlise, Marie, Sarah or the middle child in New Hampshire and there are no records showing that Marie was ever registered in school there. However, California is almost 3,000 miles away from New Hampshire and if you were to drive straight there, it would take you roughly four days. If he killed them shortly after Marlise and her children were last seen, that seems like an awful long time to have four bodies in your car, when it would have been easy to dispose of them somewhere else along that route. Police have released a photo taken on either Maria's sixth or seventh birthday party, which would have occurred after Marlise was last seen by her family. It is unknown where the photo was taken, but police are appealing for anyone who was either at this party or recognises any of the children in the party to contact authorities. If anyone is able to give police information about this party or the people who were in attendance, this would likely aid in the police's timeline and could possibly identify the middle child and her mother if they were indeed at this party. This photo will be available on the Uncovered True Crime blog which you can find at uncoveredtruecrimepodcast.blogspot.com. At this point, I would like to share the timeline that police have given for both Marlise and Terry Rasmussen. I will start with Marlise. Marlise was originally born in Connecticut on the 28th of January 1954 and was the second oldest of five daughters. When her parents split up in 1961, Marlise and her older sister lived with her father in Connecticut while her other sisters went to live with her mother in California. She attended Stanford High School before moving to La Merda, California when she was 15 to be with her mother. It is at this point that she assumes her mother's last name, Salomon. The following year, Marlise marries her first husband in Las Vegas and the two of them will go on to live in various parts of California. Their daughter, Marie, was born on the 12th of June 1971. The year after she was born, her and her husband moved to Connecticut to live with Marlise's father. They then moved to Fall River, Massachusetts in either February or March 1973. Then in July of that same year, Marie and her father moved to Lakewood, California, originally without Marlise. However, during that summer, Marlise would travel to Lakewood and take custody of her daughter, quote, when Marie's father wasn't present, unquote. Marie's father was in the Navy, which could explain why they moved around frequently. Marlise and Marie's father divorced in February 1974, and Marlise was awarded custody in the divorce. 
The last time Marie's father saw her was in August 1976 in the Hawaiian Gardens, California. In September 1974, Marlise marries her second husband in Los Angeles, and although they would stay in California, they continued to move around frequently. Marlise and her second husband welcomed Sarah into the world on December 13, 1977, however the couple would separate the following year. Sarah's father was awarded custody, with Marlise receiving visitation rights. Sarah's father entered a new relationship in October 1978, and the timeline released by the Department of Justice states that Sarah was, quote, not observed and is presumably with Marlise, unquote. This takes us right up to when the three were last seen. Now, I will discuss Terry's timeline. He was born in Colorado on the 23rd of December 1943 under the name Terry Peder Rasmussen. Between 1954 and 1958, he attended Whittier Elementary School in Phoenix, Arizona. He attended North High School in Phoenix, Arizona before dropping out in his sophomore year. He enlisted in the US Navy in 1961 and was discharged in July 1967. Between 1967 and 1968, he moved to Hawaii to work in his parents' shoe shop. On the 20th of July 1968, Rasmussen married his wife in Hawaii, and the following year, they moved back to Phoenix, Arizona, where their twin daughters were born. In 1970, him and his family would move to Redwood, California, and he would work as an electrician in the nearby Alopato County. That same year, his first son was born, and two years later, they welcomed another daughter. In 1970, Terry and his family moved to Redwood City, California, where he worked as an electrician. In 1973, the family moved back to Phoenix, Arizona, and in April of that same year, he was arrested by the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. Two years later, in June 1975, he was arrested in Phoenix, Arizona for aggravated assault, and it is believed that his wife and children left him shortly after this. In the December of either 1975 or 1976, Rasmussen arrives unexpectedly to visit his wife and children in Payson, Arizona. He is in the company of an unidentified female. Terry indicated that he was living in the Casa del Rey apartments in Ingleside, Texas, and this was the last time he would be seen by his family. The woman seen with Terry at this time is unlikely to be Marlise, as she was married to her second husband at the time, and would have either been pregnant or just given birth to Sarah at this point. The woman might be the middle child's mother, but there is no way to know for certain with the information currently available. In June 1978, Terry works for the Brown and Root Company in Houston, Texas, and records indicate that he, quote, quit to work somewhere else, unquote. In 1978, he contacts a friend in Arizona and asks for money and states that he is working in Texas on an oil rig. On the 28th of September 1978, Rasmussen and his first wife's divorce was final, and his whereabouts at this time are unknown. Between 1978 and 1979, he worked in Manchester, New Hampshire as head electrician, and he now goes under the name Bob Evans. In January, 1980, one Elizabeth Evans signed a certified letter addressed to Bob Evans in Manchester, New Hampshire. There has been a lot of speculation as to who Elizabeth Evans is. It could be Denise Bowden, although it is unknown why she would be using an alias. The woman could have been Marlise, as she may have used an alias in order to avoid her children's father or her family finding out where she lived. Also, her middle name was Elizabeth, so this would have been an easy alias to keep. A member of the public came forward and suggested that Elizabeth Evans was Elizabeth Lamont, a 17-year-old girl who ran away from New Hampshire in 1984. Police ruled this out as it doesn't seem to fit with their timeline and Elizabeth Lamont would only have been 13-year-old when this letter was signed. Although, as a direct result of this tip, police were able to determine that Elizabeth, who was never reported missing, was in fact a Jane Doe who had been murdered in Tennessee in 1985. The address that the certified letter was sent to was 925 Hayward Street, which is Denise Bowden's last known address and one that Terry was himself associated with. Although this would indicate that Denise is Elizabeth Evans, why would she sign under a different name? It is also possible that the house was actually Terry's and Denise didn't move in until after Elizabeth Evans either moved out or had been murdered. In February 1980, Terry was arrested in New Hampshire under the name Robert T. Evans for issuing a bad cheque, and on the arrest paperwork, his wife is listed as being Elizabeth Evans. 
He was arrested again in May 1980 for theft of services and again his spouse is listed as being Elizabeth Evans. In October 1980, Terry Rasmussen is arrested under the name Bob Evans in Manchester, New Hampshire for diverting an electric current and in this arrest no spouse is documented. This takes us up to November 1981 when Donise and Don Bowden were last seen in Manchester, New Hampshire. His whereabouts after this are unknown until he starts working as an electrician between March 1984 and May 1985 under the name Curtis Kimball in California. In May 1985, he was arrested in Cypress, California under the name Curtis Mayo Kimball for a DUI. November of that same year, the first barrel would be found in Bearbrook State Park that contained the body of Marlise Honeychurch and Marie Vaughan. In January 1986, Terry is living and working in a holiday host RV park in Santa Cruz, California under the name Gordon Jen. In June 1986, he would abandon Lisa, aka John Bowden, in California. In September 1986, fingerprints between Gordon Jensen and Curtis Mayo Kimball confirmed that the two were one and the same person. In November 1988, he was pulled over in California, this time using the name Jerry Mockerman, and was driving a vehicle that had been stolen from Preston, Idaho. In March 1989, he was arrested for child abandonment and sentenced to three years, although would ultimately be paroled in October 1990. In May 2000, the second barrel was found that contained the bodies of Sarah McWaters and Terry Rasmussen's child, also known as Middle Child Jane Doe. This takes us up to Unsun Jun's murder in June 2002. In June 2003, he was arrested for Unsun's murder and sentenced to 15 years to life. In August 2003, DNA testing confirmed that he was not the biological father of the child he abandoned in June 1986. And in 2016, it was discovered that this child was in fact Don Bowden, Donise Bowden's child. Terry Rasmussen died in prison in December 2010. In October 2016, DNA confirmed that Terry was the biological father of the unidentified middle child found in Allenstown, New Hampshire. In January 2017, authorities released details on Robert Bob Evans and his connection to the Allenstown homicides and the disappearance of Denise Bowden, although they would not find out his legal name until January 2017, when he became the first suspect to be identified through genetic genealogy. I know that was a lot of information to take in, but there are so many different parts of this entire case that I think it's important to understand as much of the story as possible. The unidentified middle child known to be Terry Rasmussen's daughter was born somewhere between 1975 and 1977. Interestingly, right in the middle of this timeline, between December 1975 and December 1976, is when Terry unexpectedly visited his wife and children in Arizona with the unidentified female. We don't know if this unidentified female is the middle child's mother, as we don't know who the mother is, where she is, or even if she's still alive, and police have theorised that she is another one of Terry Rasmussen's victims. I just thought it was interesting that the birth of this child and this visit to his family with this woman coincided. According to the National Centre of Missing and Exploited Children, the middle child was anywhere between 2 to 4 years old at the time of her death. She had slightly wavy brown hair and DNA testing has revealed that she was Caucasian but had a small amount of Asian, Black and American Indian ancestry. She had an overbite that might have been noticeable to others and she may have been anemic during her lifetime. Police do not believe that she is from New Hampshire and believe it's more likely that she was from either Texas, Arizona, California or Oregon. Just days before I started recording this episode, in February 2020, the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children released a new composite sketch of what the middle child Jane Doe may have looked like during her life. This next part is pure speculation, but the new composite sketch of the Jane Doe looks very similar to a child who is seen in the picture of Marie's either 6th or 7th birthday party. Marie's birthday was on the 6th of December, so the party would have taken place sometime around then, 
And although police believe that it was either her 6th or 7th birthday party, given that we don't know exactly when she and the other three females died, and Terry Rasmussen didn't leave New Hampshire until 1981, Marie could have been as old as 10 when she was murdered. It feels wrong saying as old as 10, although that's the oldest that she could have been when Terry cruelly took her life. Finding out where and when this party was held and who was in attendance could go a long way into identifying not only the middle child, but also when she, Marlise, Marie and Sarah were killed. This photo will be available on the blog and if you have any information about this party, please contact the New Hampshire authorities. Another thing I found really interesting is that Terry Rasmussen used his legal name up until he was last seen with Marlies Honeychurch, which makes me think that he hadn't committed any murders before this, in November 1978. Now I would like to discuss two missing persons cases out of New Hampshire that happened at the time Terry Rasmussen lived there. I'm going to start with Lorene Ron, who was born on the 3rd of April 1966, and in April 1980, she was 14 year old and attended Parkside Junior High School in Manchester, New Hampshire. She was a good student and she loved singing, dancing, and dreamed of one day being an actress. She lived with her mother Judith, who was dating a tennis player at the time. On the 26th of April 1980, Judith had plans to watch one of her boyfriend's tennis matches. Lorraine would usually go with her mother to these matches, but as it was spring break, she asked her mum if she could just stay at home, and Judith agreed. Judith left their third floor apartment that day, not knowing it would be the last time she saw her daughter. Like a lot of teenagers would have, Lorraine decided to invite two friends round to the house since her mother wasn't home. A female and a male friend arrived at some point that evening and the trio began drinking, mainly wine and beer. During the evening, the male friend heard a voice in the corridor outside Lorraine's house. Thinking Judith had returned early, he went out the back exit, which I presumed would have been a fire escape. Lorene walked to the door behind him and continued drinking with her other friend. Judith didn't arrive home until around 1am and she noticed all the light bulbs in the corridor had been unscrewed and completely removed from the fixture. She continued inside her apartment and was again surprised to find the door was unlocked. She peeked her head into Lorene's room and saw a female figure lying on the bed. Satisfied that Lorene was safe within the house, she herself went to bed and it wasn't until the next morning when she got up and realised that the person she saw in Lorene's bed was in fact Lorene's friend who she'd been drinking with the night before. The friend informs Judith that she had left Lorene when they both decided to settle down for the night and that Lorene had chose to sleep on the couch. Lorene was reported missing soon after but the police treated her as a runaway and it seems that not a lot of manpower was put into finding her. One thing I do briefly want to discuss is even if children do decide to leave on their own accord, this is not an excuse for no one looking for them. Children aren't meant to be out in the world on their own with no one looking after them. There's been so many cases I've read about where police declare a young person as a runaway and all of a sudden it's treated as if it's not a priority to find them. One of the theories in this case is that Lorraine was a runaway, but that doesn't mean her case is any less important or that finding her isn't any less important. Runaway teenagers are extremely vulnerable and are at high risk of being homeless or being victims of violence. This attitude needs to change if we're going to protect these teenagers. Ran over, now back to Lorraine's case. Sadly, I couldn't find any information on when her male friend left or when she and the female friend decided to go to bed, as this would really help the timeline. All we know is that there was no sign of a struggle and it appears as though Lorraine did leave the house voluntarily before 1am on the 27th. As the front door was open and she'd left without her purse or any clothes, it seemed as though she planned on returning soon. Also, why did she leave in the first place? It's possible that she may be left to go to a corner shop that was maybe still open, but this seems unlikely as she didn't take her purse. I'm more inclined to believe that she was going to meet someone. 
but who and why? The male friend who had been at Lorraine's house that night took his life five years after Lorraine disappeared, although he was never considered a suspect, and if he returned straight home after leaving the apartment, it's likely his parents were able to provide him an alibi. Another interesting part of this case is that the light bulbs in the corridor had been taken out of the light fixture. Whoever took the light bulbs out must either have been a resident of the apartment block or have been let in by someone, assuming that the apartment block had a buzzer entry, but why take them out in the first place? My first guess would be that they didn't want to be seen there by anyone. Most light fixtures in common corridors would not be particularly easy to take out as they are not like your typical light bulb or light fixture that you would find in your own house. The reason this caught my attention so much is because by trade, Terry Rasmussen was an electrician and he would have known how to take these bulbs out. But why would he have been visiting Lorraine? We know that Terry was an abusive man who had abused children before. Is it possible he somehow got his hooks into Lorraine and possibly groomed her? Again, pure speculation and while there is no evidence to show that they actually knew each other, I personally don't think that if Terry was grooming her, many people would have been aware of it. There are several possibilities if Terry did have something to do with her disappearance, but it's important to say that police have never stated that he is a suspect. In fact, no one has been publicly named as a suspect, but that doesn't mean there haven't been leads and developments in her case. In October 1980, just months after Lorraine was last seen, Judith discovered that she had been charged for three calls that had been made from California, all of which were from motels, one in Santa Ana and two in Santa Monica. As she had no connection to California, Judith believed that Lorraine made these calls and had been able to pull them on her mother's landline, which would have been possible back then. One of these calls was to a teen sexual advice hotline, which was managed by a doctor and his wife. When initially questioned about this call, the doctor said he had no information about Lorraine's case, but for one reason or another, his story changed five years later. He claimed that young female runaways would often call the hotline and would sometimes meet up with his wife. He said that one of these girls might have been from New Hampshire and that a woman called Annie Sprinkle might have more information. Turns out, Annie worked in the porn industry and investigators decided to comb through all the porn videos related to Annie although Lorene wasn't found to be in any of them, and they were unable to establish any link between Annie and Lorene. After looking into this lead further, police discovered that a known child pornographer, Dr. Z, was known to work out of one of the motels that had charged a call to Judith's phone. There doesn't seem to be any link between the doctor, his hotline, and Dr. Z, but this doesn't mean that Lorene didn't call the hotline asking for help. If she was somehow sold or was being abused, and forced to make these films, it's possible that she tried to get help by calling this number. She probably wouldn't have had any money on her, so she redirected the charge to her mother's phone, also maybe hoping that this would lead her mother to finding out where she was. Personally, I don't think the doctor suggesting they talk to Annie and the lead about Dr. Z in the motel are a coincidence. Again, just a theory, but is it possible that the doctor had spoken to Lorene, knew that she was somehow involved in the porn industry and decided to gently point investigators in that direction. If he did know all this, why wouldn't he just say? Even doctors can break privilege if they suspect abuse, and if a 14-year-old girl being in the porn industry doesn't count as abuse, I don't know what does. There have been a few unconfirmed sightings of Lorraine over the years in Alaska and in Boston, but nothing that has helped the investigation move forward. Judith received hang-up calls for years after Lorraine's disappearance, however they stopped when she moved to Florida. She believes someone close to Lorraine knows what happened to her that night and still has hope that she is alive somewhere. Lorraine's disappearance wouldn't be the last in the area, as three months later another young woman went missing. Denise Sinault was born on the 14th of June 1954 and had two small children with her ex-husband Paul. She and her children lived on Hayward Street in Manchester, New Hampshire and sadly, this is all I know about Denise's life before her disappearance. She was 25 years old when she went missing on the 8th of June 1980. She went out for some drinks at the Merrimack Club in Manchester and was seen talking to two men in this club and she had told one of them that she was on her way to a party. 
She was seen leaving and has never been seen again since. Her family said that it wasn't like her to just leave without warning or telling anybody where she was and she was reported missing two days later. There really isn't a lot of information available on Denise's case online. Her ex-husband Paul was allegedly arrested on drug offences in 1999 and he lists his address as being 343 Hayward Street, which is where Denise lived at the time she went missing. I think that in any missing persons case, it's important to look to the people closest to the victim and her ex-husband probably would have been a good place for investigators to start, although his name isn't even mentioned in a lot of sources I was able to find. And even if he was arrested on drug charges, this happened 19 years after she disappeared, so it's not particularly relevant to her case. In recent years, police searched a wooded area on Kimball Street in Manchester, New Hampshire, in connection with Denise's disappearance, although they haven't stated why this area is of particular interest to them. It's possible that Denise did go to a party after she left the bar and was either killed or died accidentally and was covered up by others in attendance, although this is all pure speculation. If police have found anything during these searches, they haven't given any details to the public. So right now, we have very little to go on. One thing that I found interesting is that one of the surnames Terry Rasmussen is known to have used is Kimball, like Kimball Street, where police have searched in relation to Denise's case. Denise and Terry both lived on the same street at the same time and it's unknown if the two even knew each other. It's not even known if Denise Bowden and Denise and Nault knew each other. I saw some speculation on a Websluice thread that Denise Bowden and Denise and Nault are related. Ancestry really is not my area of expertise, however the user Steven2016 seems to believe that Denise Bowden's uncle married a woman whose maiden name was Denault. If there is any relation here, which I believe if there is, it's very distant, it would have been to Paul Denault, as Denault was Denise's married name, not her maiden name. Nonetheless, whether they were related or not, I don't think that this has got any bearing on whether their cases are connected. Another thing that I think is interesting is that Denise Denault and Denise Bowden lived on the same street at the same time. What are the chances that two women from the same street would go missing within 18 months of each other and their cases not be connected? It is totally possible, but it does seem unlikely. Also, Denise Denault, Denise Bowden and Marlies Honeychurch were all brunette, in their early 20s and single mothers at the time that they were last seen. We know that Terry Rasmussen killed Marlies Honeychurch and that he is deemed the main suspect in Denise Bowden's disappearance and the similarities between Denise Denault, Denise Bowden and Marlies Honeychurch are striking. Also, even though Lorene Braun is significantly younger, she has a strong similarity to Denise Denault. Just another thing to note. All of this is just pure speculation and although Denise Denault's name was mentioned in a news conference conducted by the New Hampshire Police on Terry Rasmussen, they have not publicly stated that he is a suspect in her case and Lorene Ron's name wasn't even mentioned in this news conference. Criminologist at Northeastern University, Jack Levin, gave his thoughts on Terry Rasmussen and weighed in on the probability of him being related to Denise Denault and Lorene Ron's disappearances. He said, Quote, what distinguishes Rasmussen from most serial killers is that he targeted people with whom he had a relationship. Most serial killers would never do that. It's the last thing they would do. Instead, they focus on complete strangers. This guy may not have been able to control himself when in an intimate relationship, either as a father, guardian, or husband. And he decided that when he didn't like the way things were going, he would get even with his victims. It seems to me that when you see people who live on the same street as the killer and it happens more than once, you have to believe he is the killer. In my view, I think we have to look at the relationship Rasmussen had with all these missing people. I think if we find a relationship, we will find the killer." Unquote. 
Yes. It's possible that Denise and Lorraine's cases are totally unconnected to Terry Rasmussen and also totally unconnected to each other. Denise and Lorraine may have met totally different fates, but I thought it was important to at least put forward the theory that the Terry Rasmussen was involved in their disappearances. Shortly after the ABC documentary The Chameleon, which is about Terry Rasmussen, ABC published an article briefly documenting Terry's crimes. And they mentioned a Jane Doe from San Coen County who was found on the 29th of March 1995. I have been researching Terry Rasmussen and all the cases I've covered today for quite a long time and I had never heard this Jane Doe spoken about in relation to Terry Rasmussen so I found this very interesting. Jane Doe was found in an irrigation ditch along Bacon Island Road in the Delta area west of Stockton, California. She was found in a refrigerator tied up in loads of blankets and a Hillary brand sleeping bag. Her body along with the blankets had been tied with rope and electrical tape, her hands were tied behind her back and she had a sock in her mouth. Police determined that she had died from blunt force trauma to the head. Items found in the refrigerator gave police a good idea of where the refrigerator had originally come from. Inside they found five small plastic tubs of milk found commonly in schools, jails and hospitals. They were able to determine that this specific brand of milk had been distributed in Sacramento and was most commonly found in institutions such as schools and jails in North California. The rope the victim had been tied with was bought in an army supply store in Oakley and in the freezer compartment of the refrigerator there was an unopened bag of ice from the Glacier Ice Company that had been produced in Fremont and shipped only to the East Bay area. Also found were packets of butter from local KFC restaurants. The refrigerator serial number revealed that it had been manufactured in Pennsylvania and sold in Oakland, California. For all these reasons, police believe that the refrigerator likely came from the East Bay area, likely from one of the following locations, either Richmond, Antoch, Pittsburgh, Oakley or Brentwood. Former San Coen County Assistant Sheriff John Hubbard said that while she had been found in March 1995, they believe she had been murdered at some point during the summer of 1994. He said that this, combined with the location of the items found in the fridge, makes him believe that Terry Rasmussen is a possible suspect in this case, as he was known to be in that area in the summer of 1994. In the official timeline released by the Department of Justice in 2017, they stated that they were not aware of Rasmussen's whereabouts between 1990 when he absconded from parole and June of 1999. Although he was released from a jail in California and then reappeared in 1999 still in California, that doesn't necessarily mean that he stayed in California for those nine years. Yes, it's absolutely possible that he could have, although it's equally as possible that he moved from state to state like he had done his entire life. It is totally possible that in the three years since this timeline was published, police have found out more information about Terry Rasmussen's whereabouts that they just haven't made public. And I would assume this is the case, as there is no other way that John Hubbard would be able to know that Terry Rasmussen was in the East Bay area of California in the summer of 1994. Whilst looking into this case, I found a couple of other similarities between her murder and the way that Terry Rasmussen is known to kill his victims. First is the blunt force trauma, second is the electrical tape that was found with the Jane from California but was also found in the barrels where Marlise, Sarah, Marie and the middle child were found. These similarities are very circumstantial and on their own they don't directly point to Terry Rasmussen being involved although if he was in this area at this time, it is a possibility, so I wanted to mention it anyway. The 2020 documentary doesn't speak about this Jane Doe either, and there's not a lot of information on her case. And out of the handful of articles I was able to find on this case, only one of them speculated that Terry Rasmussen was involved. Nevertheless, I found it interesting and wanted to include her case anyway. Jane Doe was in an advanced state of decomposition, so there's not a facial recomposite available for her. Sources differ on her age. Some say she was between 24 and 45, others say 30 to 45 and some say 29 to 41. She was Caucasian, had light coloured hair, possibly either strawberry blonde or red and weighed between 110 and 130 pounds. 
She had manicured nails, and except for a few fillings, her teeth were in near perfect condition. When she was found, she was wearing a blue sweatshirt, a white Fruit of the Loom t-shirt, a 34B Victoria's Secrets bra, Levi shorts, multicoloured knee-high socks with toes in them, and Gorilla brand boots. Police said that she looked as if she was dressed for some sort of outdoor activity. She was wearing a third diamond carrot ring on her wedding finger on her right hand, and police have speculated that she was either divorced or separated at the time of her murder. She also was in possession of a leather band that looked as if it had been part of a charmed necklace. The charms for said necklace were in her pocket as if the necklace had somehow broken and she planned to repair it. For some reason, her case isn't currently listed on NamUs, which could go a huge way into identifying her. If you have any information about the Sam Cohen 1995 Jane Doe, please contact the county's homicide unit on 209-468-4425. With many cases, finding the identity of the killer is often where the investigation closes, but that is not the case here. Denise Denault, Denise Bowden and Lorene Ron are still missing, and it's important that they get justice and that their family received closure. We also need to identify who Elizabeth Evans was and who the middle child and her mother is. A few missing children have been ruled out as being the middle child. They are Fanny and Jessie Stewart, missing sisters who disappeared with their mother Mary Stewart on the 10th of December 1977 in California. Amber Crumb, who went missing on the 26th of December 1983 from Texas and Kimberly Yates, last seen on the 26th of August 1985 in Rhode Island. She has also been ruled out as being Aleka Manning, who went missing on the 17th of February 1975 from Maricopa, Arizona. If you have any information on the cases we have covered today, please contact the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children on 1-800-THE-LOST, which is 1-800-843-843. 5678 or you can visit their website at www.missingkids.org. If you've got any information on Terry Rasmussen or any more of his victims that we haven't covered today, please contact the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-223-3648. You can also email them at coldcaseunit at dos.nh. Gov. Alternatively, you can email Deputy Peter Headley at the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department at pheadley, which is spelt P-H-E-A-D-L-E-Y at sbcsd.org. You can find all pictures and sources related to this case on our blog at at uncoveredtruecrimepodcast.blogspot.com If you have a look on the blog, I will include pictures of the facial recomposites of Marlise, Sarah and Marie, as well as pictures taken during their life. It's absolutely amazing the accuracy of these pictures, so I would like to take a minute to thank the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children for all the amazing work they do in trying to protect children from harm. That is everything I have for you today. Thank you for listening till the very end. Please stay safe and have a good night.